Listen this morning as I read from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, bought spices, so they could embalm him. Very early on Sunday morning, as the sun rose, they went to the tomb. They worried out loud to each other, who will roll back the stone from the tomb for us? Then they looked up, saw that it had been rolled back. It was a huge stone, and they walked right in. They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed all in white, and they were completely taken aback, astonished. He said, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, the one they nailed on the cross. He's been raised up. He's here no longer. That's where the title of my message comes from. Look at your neighbor and say, he is not here. He is risen. Now tell somebody else the same thing. Say, he is not here. He is risen. Don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, the one they nailed on the cross. He's been raised up. He's here no longer. You can see for yourselves that the place is empty. Now on your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going on ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there exactly as he said. Say those words with me. Exactly as he said. Those four words one more time. Exactly as he said. That's so critical. They got out as fast as they could beside themselves, their heads swimming. Stunned, they said nothing to anyone. Bow your hearts with me, please. Father, we're stunned this morning at your presence in this place. Our hearts are silent before you because, as Pastor Jeremy said, we don't have words. There are no words. We're overwhelmed at your goodness and your mercy, your grace that you poured out upon us. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and you expressed God in human form. You, you, the word became flesh and you moved into the neighborhood and we saw how you lived and, and, and you showed us God. You showed us the face of God. You showed us the kindness and the goodness of God, the mercy of the Lord, the grace of God. I thank you today that you come and you open our hearts as we prepare today to take these last few moments together in this service and to celebrate the, the most amazing, history-changing, life-transforming event that has happened in all of time and all the world. Thank you, Jesus, that you conquered death and the stone was rolled away and you arose triumphant and victorious over sin, over death, over the curse, over sickness, over disease, over poverty, over everything, O oh God, that we were cursed with due to our sin. Jesus, I just acknowledge before you that I cannot do anything. Holy Spirit, you've got to move in this place today and touch hearts and transform lives. I'm not a good enough preacher. It's all about you. Move by your spirit today and, and help us to see front and center Jesus Christ, the Lamb who has overcome. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. We'll be careful to give you all the praise. It's in your name that we pray and all of God's people said. Amen. 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 I love the Lord. I love his presence in this place today. To be able to celebrate a victory that has already been won. Point number one right into it today. I don't want to waste any time, but I want to do remind you that this series we've been marching through, the book of Mark, is an expositional series. 
we have continually reminded you that Mark shows us a distinction between religion that offers advice and the gospel, which is news. It is good news particularly. It is a fact that has been recorded and it is now being declared showing us of something that has already taken place. Religion is advice about what you can do, what you maybe should do, and what you shouldn't do. But the gospel is a factual statement. It is news. It's not advice. It's news. It's news about a fact that's already taken place. And this morning we are here to declare that he is risen. Yeah. As the Old Testament, as the old saints of the New Testament period used to say in response, one would say he is risen, the other would, would respond and say he is risen indeed. Let's try that. He is risen. Amen. He is alive. Praise God. First point today, the resurrection is God's definitive statement about the identity of Jesus Christ. It's the final word. There, there's nothing else left to say because it itself declares who this Jesus Christ is. The resurrection is God's definitive. It is the defining moment it is being shouted to every corridor of the universe that God received the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world and the Lamb was without spot and without blemish and the godly died for the ungodly and the just for the unjust and, and it wasn't just enough for Him to die in order to reconcile us but the Bible says God received that sacrifice and He put His stamp of approval on it and in doing so He raised Jesus up to a whole new life. And because of that this morning, we have hope. As Jeremy said, hope has a name. Joy has a name. Peace has a name. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 who said that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. What was it that declared Jesus to be the Son of God with power? His resurrection from the dead. All of the claims, this just sort of painted a great big huge exclamation point at not the end of Jesus' ministry, but the opening up of the whole universality of His kingdom. That He is not going to be, but He is now King of kings and Lord of lords. And He is reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high. Come on somebody, go ahead and say amen this morning. The resurrection is God's definitive statement concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. Every false accusation, every lie that was told against Him, every doubt that was an attempt to cause faithful witnesses and disciples to begin to doubt who Jesus was, it all, it all is swallowed up and there's just nothing left to say. It is the final statement. It is all there is. He is forever glorified. He is he is arisen. We sing hallelujah because the Lamb has overcome. The whole book of Revelation is concerning a Lamb that was slain. It's all about that crucifixion picture that took place 2,000 years ago on a Good Friday. This morning as we look at this, I want you to think with me just for a few moments together before we split up. Beautiful spirit of community in this place, presence of God here. There's unity in the spirit that's in this room. God can do some amazing things when people get in unity. Somebody say amen. amen. And I, I, I want to take a moment and be very real with you because the, 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 the celebration of Friday doesn't come, I'm sorry, the celebration of Sunday morning doesn't come uh, without the pain of Friday afternoon. 
Thursday night and the three trials and the tribunals and, and the mocking and the spitting and the beating and the bruising and the being crowned with thorns and being lied upon and denied by his best friend and, 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 and being betrayed and kissed to identify him by the treasurer of his little organization, Judas. Think about all the things that Jesus has undergone and in the middle of the, the weakness of his own physicality, he gets nailed to a cross and he has to be the sin bearer for the sins of the whole world, of everything in the past, everything in the present, everything that would ever be offensive to the law of God and the character, the holy nature of God. Jesus Christ bore the penalty of that. The scripture says in Romans 3 and in 1 John, it declares that he was the propitiation. He was the wrath bearer. He took it out upon him. God was literally giving the whole world a whooping. And Jesus took it. We were sentenced to death and Jesus stepped forward and said, I will die in their place. And that's what he did. Think about this. Every bit of hope, every smattering of, of faith and expectation that was there in the hearts of these faithful disciples who had followed him, who had stood by him, who had defended him against those who attempted to lie against him. And it seemed to all come crashing down in just a moment's notice. It was only a week ago that he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and the whole crowd was screaming, Hosanna to the highest! How could something so dramatic, so different, so drastic of a change take place in just a few short days? And then we're in the upper room with him as his disciples and he's talking about all this he's going to send the Holy Spirit and I have to go away and, and they're not understanding it and yet he's just attempting to invest in them to build into them knowing that the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit himself the comforter the other comfort he was going to send another counselor another teacher who would come alongside them he would do the faithful work of reminding them of everything that he had said to them in those closing moments of the old covenant Closing moments of an old age. Closing moments of, a law, of an old law order. Closing moments of an old priesthood that, that couldn't really do anything about sins. Closing moments of uh, 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 slitting the throats of bulls and goats and rams and, 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 and doves and all of these things that really just roll the sin account into a great big huge promissory note like, this, like the national debt. Literally you can see the sin debt. The clock is just exploding. And Jesus in one moment of jubilee is going to take on all of it and pay it off. He's going to pay the, the, the international sin debt of the whole universe. He's going to take it upon himself, bearing the sin of every, every one. But you know what? In the middle of this, they come down to it and they see that the hope of, of the world, the possibility of this king who's supposed to raise up a new kingdom, that they, they'd seen blind eyes open when he touched them. They'd seen... Deaf ears unstopped, they'd seen him show compassion to broken, wounded, hurt, impoverished, bruised, beaten down sheep of people. They'd seen him command the, the elements, the winds and the waves had to obey him. They had seen him literally have power and raise Jairus' daughter back to life. And a Roman centurion's soldier whom he cared for Jesus was amazed at his faith and he just said, just speak the word and it'll be done. And Jesus spoke the word and it was done. And people knew these stories and they had hope and they had expectation and they're longing to see this thing finally take place and the Roman government be toppled and Jesus be the rightful heir to the king. 
be the king of Israel. But yet he constantly talked about being lifted up. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to me. And they never really got it. And they're going, what is he talking about? And they're scratching their heads and they're shaking their heads. And, and at one point, the one who had the revelation of who Jesus was, in the next moment when Jesus talked about having to go to Jerusalem and to lay down his life, Peter said, not so, Lord. And Jesus had to look at him and say, get behind me, adversary, because you don't know the things of God. You don't understand that the way God is going to topple the Roman government is He's going to actually have me submit to death and I'm going to actually enter into death and taste death for every man and I'm going to turn it upside down and inside out and I'm going to burst life back into that place where death was reigning. They don't understand that. They've forgotten the promise. Second point this morning I want you to see is that God's promise is still true even when we've forgotten about it. God's promise is still true. Come on, somebody say this out loud with me. Here we go. God's promise is still true even when we've forgotten it. It's easy to shout about Sunday morning and the resurrected Christ, but think with me of of, of about a 36-hour period, literally from about 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. It's preparation day. The Passover is going to begin at sundown. Remember the Hebrew calendar, the, the, the day is run from... It actually begins in the dark. It begins at night. It it just shows you in Genesis chapter 1, the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day. So a new day in God, according to the Jewish mindset, the Hebrew mind, it actually begins in the dark. So when God tells you you're stepping into a new day, you better get ready because it's going to take some faith. You're going to need His Word to be a lamp unto your feet and a light to your path. Because typically when God shows you something new that you're supposed to step into, He doesn't give you a GPS tracking system and all 18 steps over the next 435 miles so that you can arrive at your destination knowing exactly every turn you're going to take. But He usually shows you the first step and He gives you just enough light to, to take the step that you're about to step out in faith to take hold of. It's in those moments where we sometimes forget the promises of God and I can only think that these people had to be just bearing up under the the grief and the remorse and the lost hope because Jesus was the savior of the world they were sure of it we just we know it we know what it has to be this can't be he can't be dead but we saw them take him off the cross and put him in a tomb faithful women were there when the men had already gone home women were the last ones at the cross when the men had left And they were the first ones at the tomb when the men hadn't gotten up yet. I'm thankful to God for the ladies throughout church history because if the women hadn't held it together, there have been seasons where we guys haven't shown up. And the sisters, I'm going to come on, somebody. Come on, let, 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 let me just tell you, it's, it's just, just totally amazing. If I were to take a turn and chase the rabbit down the trail and give you an apologetics lesson for this a short moment where we start to talk about proving the faith. Apologia is the Greek word and it means to defend the faith and we start to think about the logic of this. If someone were making this up and this were alive, they wouldn't have used the testimony of women because during this period of history, women didn't have a testimony, couldn't testify in court, couldn't own property, couldn't divorce their husbands. Husbands could divorce them. Women were basically just sort of a piece of property. Isn't it interesting though that Jesus let... Be the last ones there to witness him being taken down off the cross, be women, and then the first ones at the tomb. He allowed women to be the first ones to carry the word that he's alive. 
Are you hearing me this morning? But think about these sisters. Their hopes have been pinned. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus. Now what about this blood thing? I'm all about his righteousness, but what, what about his blood and he's dead? Six hours that Friday, darkness covered the earth at noon, and from noon until three, it was an impenetrable, kind of a, kind of a tangible darkness. The Bible says at three o'clock, the, the, the striking hour of the evening sacrifice, Jesus cried out and said, it is finished. And in that moment, somebody brought news from the temple that something crazy had happened, that the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place, that six-inch thick tapestry, had been ripped from top to bottom. That thing that took multiple men to hang it on those clasps. That, that protected area that only the high priest once a year went in. Nobody ever went behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was. But when Jesus cried and gave up His Spirit and said, It is finished! It's paid! The sin debt is paid! That veil was ripped from the top to the bottom. We recognize the importance of the works of Josephus. He is recognized by secular as well as Christian historians and he records that the veil was six inches thick and it was ripped just as the Bible says from top to bottom. So God's trying to tell us something. Religion has shut off the presence of God from the world but now Jesus Christ has opened up that by the opening up of the veil of his flesh. He's been crucified for us. He died for us and in our place. But thank God that's not the end of the story. I remember when I was a teenager and I heard a famous African-American preacher by the name of E.V. Hill who preached a message that changed my life. I, I, I wish I could preach like E.V. Hill used to preach years ago. And he had a message where he, 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 would, just, he would get into that kind of a sing-songy kind of flow and the congregation mm, is back and forth with him. And he said, I'm telling you it may be Friday in your life, but Sunday's coming. Look at somebody and tell them right now, it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. It may look like hope has died. It may look like every promise that you thought was going to be fulfilled in a job that didn't come through and a circumstance that didn't change, a prayer that didn't get answered the way you thought it would have gotten answered, a loved one who died, a tragedy that took place, God forbid, but a circumstance that happened to you and made you a victim. Those moments of deep, dark pain and despair, those are the Fridays of our lives when it looks like the, the thick darkness rolls in over us. But I want to tell you, this period of time had to be absolutely the saddest Sabbath in the history of the Jewish race for those people who had been believing in Jesus as this Messiah. Because Friday rolls around and now at, at, at dusk, at the sunset, Passover begins. And so they begin... All day Saturday they have the Sabbath and they go through all the motions, but everything just seems to be empty. There is no hope, there is no joy, especially for the followers of Jesus. And they wait until the end of the day when the Sabbath is finished to obey the law of God. And these two ladies who were the last ones at the cross and who saw what says in, John, in Mark chapter 15... Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. He was a well-respected and part of the council and he goes to Pilate and he's, he begs the body of Jesus... Pilate says, is he dead already? Because crucifixion usually takes multiple days. It's an overwhelming, horrific death. Inhumane to the nth degree. Pilate is surprised 
One of his Roman guards confirms, yes, sir, we know that he's dead. And so Pilate said, yes, you can take the body. So Joseph of Arimathea takes a linen shroud, takes Jesus down off the cross, wraps him in the shroud, takes him to his own tomb. So Jesus is being buried in a borrowed rich man's tomb to fulfill the prophecy found in the Old Testament. Another confirmation of who Jesus says he is. The word of God in, in, in its proclamation, and its claim. Think about this. They wait until sunset, so it's actually beginning of the new day. Sunday has begun. The third day has begun in the dark. The Sabbath has ended. It's late Saturday night, and they go to the market. They find a place still open, and they buy spices because they're going to embalm Jesus. They're getting him ready for his primary burial. A lot of people don't understand this, but during Jewish times, there were two stages of burial. You would be buried in a cave. You would be wrapped very similarly to way uh, the, all of the Middle Eastern countries practiced in that time was being wrapped in, in, in strips of cloth or in a linen shroud, various different kinds of things. But they anointed the body with spices in order to be able to keep down the overwhelming stench of decaying flesh. Because people would share tombs. Okay, This is not digging a hole in the ground, one single casket covering it back up with dirt. This is a tomb, and many times a whole family would have family members inside the tomb. When the, when the stone is rolled away... You don't want to overwhelm the people that are there grieving with the outrageous, horrific stench of death. So they're embalming the body. After the period of time when the flesh has completely decayed and it's nothing left but bones, they go and gather that shroud with the bones and they put them into the secondary burial place, which is an ossuary. When I was in Israel in 2008, visited the site of a number of places where it was confirmed that disciples had been buried and it was the bones of these different ones First of all, put in a tomb, embalmed, spices, doing the whole thing, trying to cut down on the stench of decaying flesh. Then after that had taken place, they go back and they retrieve the bones, put the bones in a safe place. So they were just going through the regular process that faithful Jews do. He was dead. He was, he was wrapped in a linen shroud. They are grieving. They're, they're shopping together. Just They're talking as sisters do. I just didn't think it would have ended this way. I never thought it would have happened like this. What, what, what do you think went wrong? What, 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 did, what happened? Is this like God sent us and gave us some hope and then he's yanked it from us? And, and what, what are we destined to stay underneath the, the, the tyrannical grip of this stinking Roman Empire all of our days and all of our lives? And you can know they're just they're grieving, they're talking, they're, they're, just, they're just letting it out the way people that are hurting have to. And they buy the stuff. They go to bed that night grieving, probably toss and turn and don't sleep well, and they get up early before dawn the next morning. They're headed to the place where they saw Joseph of Arimathea take Jesus and put him in his own tomb. They had been there. The Bible says in Mark 15 they saw the place. So they'd been there. So the next morning they got up. There's no confusion. They know right exactly where they're going. On the way they still have to be talking it out and going, and what happened? What, 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 our hopes were so great and it was going to be so amazing. It was going to be so wonderful. And still along the way, don't forget what I said. God's promise is still true even when you've forgotten it. Are you hearing me? God's promise is still true. They didn't know. They didn't know that when they got there they were going to be surprised and he was going to be alive because they didn't understand all those statements he was making about taking down the temple and raising it back up again on the third day. And so they show up. And they're greeted by a young man dressed in white next, sitting on the right side of where Jesus would have been. Burial clothes are there, but he's not there. 
Look, this is the place. He is risen. He is not here. Look, the place where he was is empty. And I love this. Oh, my, my, my. I love this. Go tell the disciples. This is what the, what the, the angel of the Lord said. Go tell the disciples and Peter. It's right there in the text. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's alive. He's going ahead of you. He'll meet you in Galilee. Now, why do you think the angel of the Lord would say, go tell the disciples and Peter? Why do you think that would, would, would be something that an angel of God, a messenger straight from the throne of God, announcing that Jesus has conquered death, he's alive, but he would care so much that he would mention one measly human being who had blown it royally. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's alive. Are you hearing me this morning? Look at this. The promise of God is greater than... and. I, I deliberately didn't even fill in the blank because you've got the answer to this in your own heart today. God's promise is still true even when we've forgotten it and when you finally realize it, the promise of God is greater than. The pro Listen, the promise of God is greater than your disappointment. They're headed to the tomb to embalm Jesus and they get there and they find out, oh, I forgot about the promise of God. He's alive. We sing hallelujah, the Lamb is overcome. But they were astonished. There was no backing up. And trying to sing, they were terrified. They're going, are you kidding me? Absolutely blown away, com completely taken aback. No plans for this. Had forgotten the promise of God. This morning, the promise of God is greater than your disappointment. And think about this. Jesus had conquered death, so the promise of God is even greater than death. Say that with me. The promise of God is greater than death. Look at this. The promise of God is greater than the curse. What is, what is the curse? It is everything that has to do with sin and sickness and disease and poverty, separation and relationships. Everything that's under the curse, the promise of God is greater than that. Oh, hallelujah. Everything Adam did, Jesus did greater. Come on. The promise of God is greater than your sin. The promise of God is greater than your failure. Listen to this as I finish this message this morning. God sent a messenger who would single out a guy who had blown it just a couple of nights before. Jesus has been three days in the grave now and the angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Now, take Peter's name out of that sentence and put yours in it. Go tell the disciples and Lauren. Go tell the disciples and Ken. Go tell the disciples and Jack. Good to see you this morning, my brother. Go tell the disciples and Carol. Go tell the disciples and Charlie. God cares enough to send the message to the world, but He knows your name personally. Whatever your situation is, the promise of God is greater. It's greater than your failure. It's greater than your sin. It's greater than your past. What is that saying to all of us that really we're no different than Peter? I mean, as a matter of fact, we are just, we identify with him so much in this passage because everybody in this room has a past that you just soon everybody had forgotten about and nobody knows and please don't bring it up. Yes, everybody. Did you hear me say I said everybody? E-V-E-R-Y body. Everybody. Everybody up in this room has a past. Go tell the disciples and your name. He's alive. And he's paid for it. He was the sin bearer. Listen this morning as I close with this last 
statement found in Acts chapter 2 because this is so pertinent to what the, the, the messenger has said. 53 days before this is Thursday night and Peter is standing in the high priest's courtyard and he's lying, he's cursing, he's denying Jesus. 53 days later, it's on the day of Pentecost. Jesus has been alive. He's shown himself, the scripture says, by many infallible proofs. 1 Corinthians says over 500 witnesses saw him. It's undeniable. Jesus tells them, wait until I've endued you with power from on high. And Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost after waiting in prayer for 10 days in the upper room. He walks out into the city and he preaches like a whole new man possessed. He was a defeated denying disciple 53 days before this but he stands up a new man on the day of Pentecost and he said this Jesus delivered up to the de according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men read this out loud with me come on here we go God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it that's a powerful, powerful scripture that death could not hold Jesus. Say that with me. Say, death could not hold him. Listen to this. You want to know why? I was thinking about this in preparation and I thought all the way back to eternity past. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit gathered together in conference and the Father said, who will go for me? And the Son said, I will go. And the bosom of the Father couldn't hold him. The Word became flesh and he didn't enter into the world uh, on the back of a white horse as a full-grown, mature king, but he comes into the world the very same way that you and I did, through the birth canal of a female. And the Bible says the womb of the virgin couldn't hold him. The wise men come to visit him when he's two, and they bring him gifts. And Herod tries to kill him, but Herod couldn't hold him. Come on, somebody, say amen. amen. At 12 in the temple, the teachers of the law couldn't hold him. His parents couldn't hold him. He was... He, 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 he had to be about his father's business. His mom has been out of town now, left Jerusalem for a day and a half and looks around and realizes I hadn't seen Jesus in 36 hours. I got to go back to the city and find the boy. He goes back to the temple. He sees Jesus sitting there and he's literally amazing the, the religion scholars and the teachers of the law and they're asking him questions and he's answering things that they don't understand. Twelve years old, the teachers of the law couldn't hold him. Somebody, come on, help me this morning. His mama said, why did you do me like that? You had me just worried sick. And he said, mother, I'm sorry, but I have to be about my father's business. And his parents couldn't hold him. His cousin John the Baptist couldn't hold him. He encountered sickness and disease and they had to bow the knee. They couldn't hold him. Poverty and lack couldn't hold him. Just ask a little boy with a lunch of five loaves and two fish that ended up feeding 20,000. The elements, the storms, the winds and the waves couldn't hold him. Jesus said, peace be still. The Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't hold him. Even the disciples couldn't hold him when they wanted to deny the possibility that Jesus was going to die. And they would go, no, 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 what are you talking about? That doesn't compute. The disciples couldn't hold him. Judas' betrayal couldn't hold him. The soldier's sword couldn't hold him. The high priest couldn't hold him. Peter's denial couldn't hold him. Pilate couldn't hold him. Herod couldn't hold him. The cross could not hold him. Death itself could not hold him. And because of that, the tomb couldn't hold him. And we sing this morning, He forever reigns. He's alive forevermore. Listen to a couple of verses of this great old hymn. It has nine, but I'm going to give you about two and that's it. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. 
Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious o'er the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of love, behold his hands inside, those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. Last one. Crown him the Lord of heaven, enthroned in worlds above. Crown him the king to whom is given the wondrous name of love. Crown him with many crowns as thrones before him fall. Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. This morning I would ask you this very simple question as we've celebrated this amazing good news of this fact that took place 2,000 years ago. He's king of all, but I'm asking you, is he king of your heart? Is he king of your life? Romans 5.10 says this, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Bow your hearts with me, please, for a word of prayer.